Zizek and Hegel and Zizek and that, but, and so on. And because I think that we have to read this in a speculative way. It's not and blah, blah, blah. The key element is that so on. You look like kind of completely different every time I talk, every time we talk, Michael. Do I? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where my bean. Oh, here it is. <laughs> There's the Michael we know. Is yeah. that better? <laughs> yeah. Or, uh, this, this is my, my summer hat now. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Nice. Summer mode. A bucket hat. I got three hats. I thought about getting a bucket hat, but I, I don't know if I want to go down that route, you know? No, nah, you do feel like a dickhead, but. Um... Peter, I have, I have you and Michael on the big screen right now. Oh, wow. Feel professional. <laughs> so Will's not actually gonna. Thing. He's not gonna look at us for the entire part. Yeah, I'm not looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm big dicking this. I'm gonna do oh, it too. But yeah. you're in the command center of Zizek and so on. Yeah, they don't pay me enough to look at you. <laughs> Jeez. All right. Uh, talked to Zizek last week. Yeah, you guys talked to Zizek. Uh, I, I, I appreciate the outpouring support from concerned patrons as to my whereabouts last week. Um, Did anyone notice? <laughs> no, I don't think anyone noticed. <laughs> uh, but Peter and Michael, you guys interviewed Slavoj Zizek last week. Tell me about that. Uh, well, we tried to do it a couple days beforehand, and he, he gets on the call, and he's a bit all over the place, and then Michael asks a very meandering question, and... <laughs> He starts to answer, and he's like, I'm sorry, I, today, without exaggeration, has been the worst day of my life. Uh, so we postponed and did it a couple days later. He sounded almost, that was almost like an Israeli, Zizek. Okay, you, you do the same line. Without exaggeration, it's been the worst day of my life. That's good, but he wasn't, that's not the way he said it. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't, yeah. Without exaggeration, it's been the last day. Well, uh, my meandering question gave him chest pains. Yeah, it was it was such a bad question. He had to end the call. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so full disclosure, I was actually there for that, and then I got sick the next day, and then and then you guys talked to him the day after that. Uh, Michael, this was this was the first time you talked to Jack. Mm-hmm. How was that for you? Did you enjoy? The little it? boy's dream has come true. Yeah, it was very cool. I loved it. Yeah. I had a good time. How was it? I mean, did it fit your it, expectation? Yeah, I reckon. Maybe more so. It did go better than I thought it would, so. I have not heard the whole thing yet, but so far I think it's the best G-Jack interview I've ever heard. And I, I, I don't say that as a invested member of this podcast. I say that as a, <laughs> as a, as a sick listener. Uh, yeah, well, well um, he, he said a lot of things he doesn't normally say. Uh, he wasn't just playing the hits, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a good 
like intro to the book and that's kind of all we were hoping for and and the added bonus of him doing like a zizekian analysis of the name of the podcast was pretty fun too i love oh, that yeah. also the the shout out to michael in australia i found very funny yeah, oh, yeah. like you the one getting fucked <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 context has has somewhat shifted since your interview uh with regard to the concept of freedom I'm mm-hmm. sure everyone wants to know what we think about the situation in Israel and Palestine. I'm sure they come to us to understand yeah. what's what's really happening. I know Zizek's working on his article on it, so we can anticipate oh, yeah. some. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's doing this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's uh, gonna piss. He's gonna say something kind of weird, and then he's gonna piss everyone off. <laughs> especially, I think a leftist especially will be pissed off. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we haven't said anything about the Ukraine war as well, so we can keep to our track record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't think we. Need I think we way. barely mentioned COVID <laughs> while it was happening. <laughs> no, actually, I think we mentioned it too much. Did we? Yeah, I think we did. I mean, it was hard not to mention it, but I don't think we ever actually like did a. Did we even ever do like an episode on it? Did yeah, there's uh, the couple Zizek books on it. We did oh, yeah, right. one on. Uh, Fabio Viggy mm-hmm. and uh, conspiracy yes, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, one last thing before we dive in, which I'm sure we're all very excited about, uh, is uh, I found a copy of Dune. And I wasn't going to read it because, you know, I always thought that was nerd shit. And I, I cracked it open yesterday and I started reading a few pages and it's actually very good. No. Yeah, Dune's a good book. Really? So that. Yeah, yeah I, great. I read it. I mean, I read it a long time ago, but I really liked it when I did. But I'm always a little suspicious when I like when I ask a pal if they read and they're like, yeah, I'm really into sci-fi. It's like, well, you just don't read then, do you? Yeah. <laughs> you want the book to be as, mo- as most like a movie that you watch yeah. as possible. <laughs> it's like you have no ability the excuses, to yeah, The excuses that I, I read for pleasure. So, okay, I guess you don't find anything beyond just like being spoon fed a very vivid storyline to be pleasurable. Yeah. But yeah, Dune's good. I've not seen the movie. Pleasure, which is why I only read erotic novels. (laughs) 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 And I masturbate. (laughs) And I cry. (laughs) I read, I read graphic erotic novels. Yeah, for pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> for pleasure. I, I I subscribe to the penthouse. <laughs> I got nothing else to say. Yeah, moving back to New York in a few days, right? Yeah, on Tuesday. Sweet. Nice. Oh, we could talk about Canadian Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, I had a great Thanksgiving too. It was funny being in the states last year and telling them that we have our own Thanksgiving, which they think is very quaint and. And you know, cute. They described it as Canadian Thanksgiving. They're like Canadian Thanksgiving. And I was like, well, you know, we just call it Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's a better time of year because American Thanksgiving is just so close to Christmas. It doesn't you don't get to break it up at all? See, that's what mm-hmm. I thought, and then I experienced it. And it's nice because it's basically the start of Christmas in the states. So you start Christmas on November twenty fifth or whatever. And you, you ride that baby out until Christmas for a month. It's, it's nice. It's too much. You eat turkey down there in Australia? Yeah, we have turkey for Probably Christmas. Not. Some dried out fucking turkey for Christmas lunch. I think turkey gets a bad rap. I think it's like all right. 
Probably if it's cooked right, but I don't think we... I've never had a nice one. I think I've heard that the main mistake that people make is that they cook it while it's still cold. Okay. The fridge. Mm-hmm. You gotta let that baby heat up for a couple hours on the countertop. You're stirring it on the barbie, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> you reckon you gotta get it to room temp, hey? I don't know. Well, that's we a had, big we, bird, you know? We have prawns on Not Christmas. Not very festive. <laughs> it's you don't festive. share a... Uh, no, you're not like you're not. No one's, not no one's at the head of the table. Slicing a prawn. Michael, prawn. <laughs> you hardly touch your prawn, Michael. <laughs> Wait, you okay, mate? <laughs> There's a didgeridoo no, playing in the corner. Prawn, you played. <laughs> You unra- yeah, you unwrap your didgeridoo for Christmas. I wonder what it is. <laughs> and you, and your, your brother's gotten a, a rain stick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good. All right, let's get to it. Yeah, freedom, a disease without a cure. Also, someone claimed someone claimed that the uh, the interview on a comment on the YouTube that was uploaded of your interview, uh, someone someone claimed that it was an AI Zizek, which I thought was funny. Yeah, and then I and then I actually clicked on an AI video of Zizek talking to Fran Lebowitz, and it was such bullshit because it was it was just a really really hackneyed riff on his coffee without cream. It's like you know, the AI didn't come up with that with that golden Zizek riff, you know. Started chopping it up. So they, yeah, okay, yeah. Chopped up, chopped up Zizek is not AI Zizek. You need an original thought. If you go to that one with uh, that director, what's his name? Bernard Herzog. Uh, Herzog, Herzog. Yeah. That I mean, that sounds completely bullshit. Mm-hmm. That's a good example of what AI can do. I was going for a walk and <laughs> I go for walks all the time. <laughs> that was good. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, much better than the first attempts you both had. <laughs> that was the one. That's the keeper. But an Australian Roman Herzog. I was going for a walk <laughs> and I had a prawn <laughs> for Thanksgiving. <laughs> But down here we call it mates giving. <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah. So, well, it was the it was the LOL at the end of that comment that really that really hit uh, cut deep. AI yeah, yeah, LOL. Yeah. Fuck you. Man. Yeah, he just he knew it. <laughs> well, enough for discussion. He saw through <laughs> bullshit. So something that Zizek said in your interview that I thought was fantastic was uh the line, freedom is the struggle over the meaning of the word freedom. Something very, to that effect. Very good line. That's a good like summation of, of mm-hmm. his point. But he... Uh, because you don't choose for, you know, it's like it, everything's in there. You don't choose it. You know, it's a struggle. Mm-hmm. There's a contradiction at the root of freedom. Yeah. There's a Hegelian process of a kind of coming to understanding of freedom. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's part of like a long list of examples that he's had, right? Like you can think back to Jaws, countless other examples, but like how a particular signifier, a master signifier organises a disparate field with all of these particularities under one universal. Yeah. Mm, Very good point. Yeah. It remains polysemous. Yeah. That's the word. Yeah. So it has no- Or to use an opera opera term, polyphonous. Another good word. But yeah, it has no fixed meaning, right? So like, I thought it was interesting that he doesn't use the Lacanian language in this new book for that. It's true. But, mm-hmm. You yeah. know, like but the idea is that like when we talk about freedom or mobilize freedom as our aim, when we fight for freedom, etc., what do we mean by freedom? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and the fight itself is a fight to define what freedom means. Yeah. But he starts the book with a uh, contemplation, uh, an example of uh, a Chinese fellow, Shen Zhi, um, a migrant worker who uh, dropped out of college and worked uh, in a factory. And secretly after, uh, after 12, 12 hour days working in this factory, went home and would learn English and eventually read a lot of Heidegger and then ended up uh, translating Richard Bolter's book, uh, Introduction to Heidegger. And Tijek uh, says there's something liberating about this dedication, and it's easy, and and it's kind of easy for like an orthodox Marxist to to say like, oh, why would you read Heidegger when you're being oppressed and working on on the assembly line in a factory? But what's instructive for Zizek is the kind of dedication to learning, even when life is not affording you ability to do so, uh, especially in the context of a world that's becoming more unfree. Yeah, and to learn how to think about how we think, thinking about mm-hmm. thinking itself. Maybe also like a subtle, you know, there's the freedom of phenomenology. Do we remember what Heidegger says about freedom? Jake? <laughs> <laughs> We've Ooh. lost our, our uh, Heideggerian yeah. voice. I think it would have something to do with the uh, Dis- disclosure of revealing <laughs> the, the disclosure of being, being an Alethea and and the the uh the the clearing of truth mm-hmm. and dasman of course but there's like yeah that because there's that tension between the i in that example there's like the ideal of freedom as an abstract principle and then mm-hmm. you know there's like there's an actual freedom in what he's doing there because mm-hmm. there's this constriction on his time and his his labor and his you know his body like exhaustion and tiredness and all that but he uses it for something that is not presented within the bounds of that situation yeah, that changing his to... like material circumstances or whatever mm-hmm. yeah it's like it he's changed he's changed the frame of his situation somehow you know by choosing something that has no no Concrete. point but itself yeah. and something that Zizek has has said for ever no one is as unfree as the person that believes without questioning it that they are free mm-hmm. you know? he says that the most dangerous unfreedom is the unfreedom that we experience as freedom he says that goethe already knew this uh he's quoting goethe here none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free yeah what is it we lack the Ghost. very language to articulate our unfreedom something like that exactly yeah i mean that's like i mean that's a zizek line right but like yeah. it's pretty much just a complete re- rephrasing of that of the Goethe line. Friend of Hegel, I believe. He was a lot older than him 
but he was he was actually quite good friends with Thicta. But yeah, the I mean the also Brzezizek. I mean, obviously this subject of freedom, you know, looms very large in German idealism. Mm-hmm. Um, and he compares it to the concept of madness. Also, I think is interesting there. This radical freedom he's calling, you know, there's something there's something of a disease in the concept of radical freedom. Something that he says uh, parasitizes on our organic well-being. Something destructive and self-destructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, or to put it in Freud's terms, that operates beyond the pleasure principle. Yeah. Again, something yeah. That's, not, that's not reducible to material, you know. Yeah. Like, if you think about like the social body, freedom acts upon it like a kind of, let's say, a movement, a freedom movement, historical movement, whatever acts as a kind of disease upon the bot the social body because it, mm-hmm. it it isn't part of the function of the regular functioning of that body it's it's an imposition on it mm-hmm. well french revolution heads out there he says freedom at its most basic is a disease there's a yeah i mean he's making a correlation between disease and craziness which you know you can say a disease of the mind mm-hmm. uh but the kind of kantian hegelian madness of radical freedom because of course, like when he's talking about this madness, at least for psychoanalysis, it's so he says with Freud, it's the beyond the pleasure principle. But one of those, of course, is like the one that's maybe more uh, approachable is sex, right? Like so, the instinctual drive to reproduce is thwarted by desire, and that's a kind of madness, right? And there's no like normal functioning of that desire. Like yeah. in terms yeah. of sex, like and he was the- saying this, he was saying this in our in our discussion. But like in the second half, where he's talking about freedom as unconscious choice, and like the problem with uh, certain contemporary understandings of freedom, which which do are, don't kind of make understand the unconscious, is that they fail to understand how like even like a normal sexuality is itself already like kind of cut and mediated by this break in the smooth functioning of like who we are as like within our like conscious selves there's like always this failure within our sexuality even yeah. when we're like quote-unquote normal yeah, yeah that sexuality comes out of the failure of like yeah i think also there's like the there's the impulse to have the kind of noble savage mentality that like or like the Rousseauian, you know man is born free and everywhere he is in chains kind of notion Although, as a sidebar, as far as I know, uh, Rousseau was a huge influence on Kant. But, yeah, I think that people do think on some level commonly, frequently that, that you know, in, man in his primeval state was more free than, than he is in a, you know, constrictive and oppressive mm-hmm. social order. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, there are that's like, it's, it's the, it's, it's like the fantasy of an un, uh, undivided or like an un, Mediated. Uh, antagonistic the thing that Zizek frequently says about human sexuality as not being as not being animal sexuality le- not like the song we're not nothing like mammals do like you know discovery channel like there is nothing you know animal about human sexuality it's 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 mm-hmm. you know distinctly mm-hmm. un. it's already corruptive yeah yeah, yeah. we've already um, fallen and just like freedom i think too like there's the there's not a uncontradictory primeval state of human freedom right the freedom is all and the free and the quest for freedom is not in its contradictions and its impossibilities and and, quest quest for freedom is not trying to access this kind of original state of freedom 
that we've lost. Relapsarian. This is, I mean, this is the bullshit with David Graeber and anarchism, right? Like, like totally. How, That's exactly like, it. Anarchism okay. in general, and David Graeber specifically, uh, is that he thinks that you can, if you can access the kind of original idea of freedom with someone like David Graeber and and this this like new fantasy of of like a supposed unblemished uh lineage of freedom yeah. that comes from somewhere that that you know no no one's necessarily heard of before uh is this idea of like a garden of eden yeah Zizek, like you just said i mean it's the, it's the cool thing about which we've mentioned a million times but like susan buck morris's book on hegel and the haitian revolution like the notion of like you know political like contemporary political freedom coming from that and not the French Revolution is really interesting because like there's the struggle for freedom for determining what freedom means the, the Haitians yep. the the the, re- the revolutionaries in Haiti said oh you know you have this uh, you have this word of, of you know this uh, egality liberté whatever mm-hmm. but, like and they're like, using yeah. like the specific ideas of the French Revolution like yeah this is also what uh, maybe a, like a strict materialist would not would not like in that in that Zizekian example where it's not uh sure you can kind of reduce everything to its material circumstances that require revolutionary change but there's something kind of abstract notion that they're pursuing i think part of it is that you know there's no actually existing freedom other than the attempt to actualize it and the gap there is what we experience as freedom yeah, it's like you don't have you don't have reasons to to have faith. Like you already mm-hmm. have faith. Mm-hmm. The reasons come after. Yeah, you find yourself like, chosen by it. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, he has this kind that. of like the, theological idea in relation to freedom, which is like I mean, his example of like believing in God, right? Like you don't, or in love, you don't like choose. You don't logic your way up into believing mm-hmm. or into loving. Yes, yeah, that thing like. With the example of the Buridan's ass or ass, mm-hmm. uh, it reminds ass. me of that uh, Lacanian quote about uh, your money or your life. Like you have this forced choice, and reason can only take you so far, right? But it's the radical choice which appears necessary retroactively yeah. as both you having chosen it and you being chosen by it. Like you mm. identify with the choice, and that is your moment of freedom actualized. Mm. And that's his like main point in the book, I would say. Yeah. What's the freedom what's the board as, ass thing again? Can you explain that? How the at how in English ass means three things: a donkey, a stupid person, and the part of your body you sit on. Uh and the uh, Borneo's ass is the uh, the donkey, which is equally hungry and thirsty, and sits mm-hmm. in between water and food, and can't make its mind which to go for first. Mm-hmm. So it's it brings together all three. Mm-hmm. An ass mm-hmm. can't make its mind. Who's also stupid, and somebody who sits or, on okay, the yeah, ass is somebody yeah, who doesn't choose. Yeah, right, right. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the idea is that, uh, like, but, if you but, were to follow reason or clear calculation. You know, where there's no doubt or oscillation, there is no freedom. Interesting. Like this in the this the state between the two things. Mm-hmm. The undecidability. Is, yeah. Yeah. Because if you look at freedom as a choice as the act of choosing, freedom. Yeah, like, the act of choosing between like 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 weighing 
the variables between the two choices and then making the correct one between them. That's not what he means. Where, yeah, where yeah, freedom, yeah. where the choice seems like you don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. It's like your duty. Yeah. No. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're free to make the right choice. <laughs> it's the obvious, yeah. right? Mm. Yeah, because the third example, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm not good on this point, but the third example he has is on communism and how proletariat doesn't, you can't see the conditions within, you can't see the conditions within which you are as being exploitative, et cetera, until you identify as a proletariat. Exactly. Yeah. You need the insight of having, of, of being in the subjective position of the proletariat. But yeah, but basically the idea is that like, like the religious person, communism emerges or appears to you as the right step or whatever. It doesn't come out of reasons to believe. Belief comes, it, the reasons come after the believing, right? Yeah. yeah. And he says here, uh, to see the reasons for belief, one already has to believe. And let's go to the end here. The same holds for Marxism. It is not that after objectively analyzing history, I've become a Marxist. My decision to be a Marxist the experience of a proletarian position, makes me see the reasons for it. I.e., Marxism is the paradox of objective, true knowledge accessible only through a subjective parcel position. Fucking brilliant, man. It's like, yeah. who else would say that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are so <laughs> many amazing zingers in this one, in the Freedom Book. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta take your hat off to the man who still has it. Mm. I really liked that bit, the Walter Benjamin part about uh, language as such and then the language of man. We mm-hmm. mentioned it in a previous episode, um, but you made me think about it earlier when you were talking about prim- primeval man. So, like the distinction between animal and the human animal, like what what is the gap that separates the animal from the human animal? So, like mm. along the same lines as the Walter Benjamin on language and language thing. You have the animal and the human animal, but what makes us human, like the gap that separates animal from human animal, is that excessive element, like the um, proliferation of passions. Mm. So, like Frank Ruder has this bit um, via Bataille. Is that how you say his name? Bataille? Do you know what I'm talking about? The French dude? Yeah. 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 Uh, about how the human emerges when it can act as an animal like when it can be something other than itself, when it can introduce a gap. So it's only in this redoubling where a difference emerges, that's humanity. So, so just like the example earlier about sex, yeah. it's the same thing. Uh-huh, yeah. He also has this bit where there's like kind of like language as such, and then like his notion of lalang, which is yeah. like a particular language, uh, mm-hmm. like subjectivized language. Mm-hmm. And he compares that to the way freedom works like there's this kind of abstract freedom but then there's subjectivized freedom yeah like lalang is all the non-intended ambiguities mm-hmm. and word plays mm-hmm. and all of that mm-hmm. yeah he says but, but he says like the there's a difference in the as such of freedom and the as such of language he says they're they're actually opposed that uh the same split between as such and experienced reality is also at work in freedom uh beyond or rather beneath free acts of an actual subject there is the abyss of pure freedom the status of language as such is symbolic a stable structure with 
while mm. the status of freedom as such is that of an impossible real. Mm. So the kind of, yeah, reversed that, yeah, that freedom, that kind of eruption of freedom out of the real. He says, a singularity popping out and disappearing. The whole mystery of subjectivity resides in the codependence of these two opposed moments. Sounding very Hegelian there. Yeah. The opposed moments of language as such and freedom as such is the whole mystery of subjectivity. We'll let you, the listener, think their way through that. Uh, he also says that in a genuine situation of freedom, or like, I mean, he wouldn't put it like that, but in, in like, let's say a revolution, he says a revolutionary subject, freedom, freedom acting through the subject in that way, it uh, basically objectifies the subject. The, the, mm -hmm. the subject is an object of freedom. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, that's why he talks about terror in that way. Like, aside from being that kind of, you know, thing that liberals abhor and conservatives, that there's like the, like the divine violence of, of the revolutionary subject that through, through terror objectifies, is, becomes the object of, of freedom and revolution, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, we're back to, to, duty and sacrifice you know like offering yourself up or identifying or being interpolated as an object of like or an instrument of the will or reason or spirit of the time right yeah mm -hmm. yeah spirit's a good way of thinking of it for sure oh I, also the he, the distinction between uh abstract and concrete freedom and hegel is very interesting i think mm -hmm. um I'm just going to say it like he says it because I can't think of a different way to say it. <laughs> in a concrete life world, Shizek is saying, uh, abstract freedom changes into its opposite since it narrows our actual exercise of freedom. Yeah. So in the case of freedom to speak and communicate with others, freedom of speech, I can only exert this freedom if I obey the commonly established rules of language. Which is something that, yeah, all the free speech heads mm -hmm. will not concede. Like the people, the people on the right who say, who basically think, you know, their thing is that they should be able to say whatever the hell they want. Zizek would point out, you know, in this abstract, concrete distinction, like maybe on an absolute level, but mm -hmm. in a concrete way, you're, you're, you have to observe conventions, which are in themselves limitations. Yeah. Yeah. You're already ideological. To, made, to make yourself understood in any way, mm -hmm. you know, all right. You already have to observe those limitations to make yourself understood. And every instantiation of a concrete freedom produces at least the idea of pure abstract freedom. It's only through the concrete instantiation of freedom that you see where it fails, like how it doesn't live up to oh, nice. abstract freedom. How, how the uh, abstraction of the universal form of waste is contradicted by the, the excess of garbage as such. Which right. then points to the truth of waste itself, mm. which is the thing, you know, the excessive, the remainder. Yeah. The thing that there's not like really a, a place for already. Or like the full access to a given freedom r requires the complete reframing of that given ideological system. Like French mm -hmm. Revolution, like, you know, I mean, you can debate the origins, but one of the main accepted ones is bread right like they couldn't they didn't have access to bread so that demand for the specific freedom begins an entire process over the over a fight for freedom as yeah, yeah yeah 
like the yeah yeah the particular the how does ryan say i think ryan actually has a nice way of saying that off y3 ryan angley the the particular that changes all particulars that's the one that's yeah a nice way of that's a good it. yeah that's good yeah uh or like yeah i mean the interview you said like like i'm i'm all for the kind of liberal notion of free speech but in order to attain that like basically saying we need socialism or you know whatever communism uh to allow for like for actual free speech there would be like the entire system of what is considered free needs to be reframed reframed yeah yeah because on first approach you think that any limitation or constraint on freedom is wrong right yeah yeah born free Mm -hmm. but in chains all of that but he has this he has that example of like walking down the street and yeah, yeah, yeah. not being harassed or um beaten up or whatever. But it occurred to me when I was driving that the the dividing line on the road in the middle, the white line, whatever color you have in stupid Canada, it's enough that that line is there that it does limit your freedom, like does constrain like mm-hmm. whether you can drive to the other side yeah. or whatever. But that line is enough that you know that or at least reasonably assume that the other, the oncoming traffic won't cross it. And what happens is like you now have more freedom to not like drive in a state of pure dread or panic or whatever. Yeah. That's a really good example. I like that a lot. Mm. And this is why he's not against like, like rules, customs, politeness, uh, codes of politeness. Uh, Again, contrary to the uh, anarchist view of freedom, you know, let's take those lines away off the road. Right. All just yeah. simultaneously yeah. amongst one another what the true, the, you know, real version of freedom we can all access is. But, but anarchists yeah. actually use a traffic example. So it's like when the traffic lights break down and you're at a, um, a T-junction or what do you call it, the four crossing. Inter- intersection. Intersection, there you go. So when you're at, at an intersection, uh, suddenly people become incredibly polite. You know, like, no, no, you go through, you go through. And it does flow. Traffic actually does flow without a roundabout or whatever. Um, but, of course, it's only these, like, maybe that's like carnival or something. Like, it's this temporary um, stasis. Suspension. Yeah. Or maybe it's because the the absence of the thing that was already structuring the way they act, that is still, like, active. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Like if it was yeah, never there, you take I mean, it away like, doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas like at a four way stop or whatever, it's like the the traffic light may not exist, but there is a traffic light that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, absence is still depends on what was there before. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's not like it's not there anymore. Anyway, do you drive on the left side of the road in Australia? Yeah, left left hand side. Yeah. Rip weird. Yeah, you're seated in the right hand side of the car and you drive on the left hand side of the road. It's like a it's like the, the toilet <laughs> each countries. <laughs> yeah. It basically means that with oncoming traffic, you and the other driver are as close to each other as possible. I mean, that's the same in the correct way of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where horses ride men in Canada. <laughs> Oh, here's we're, another we're, banger we're, of a point. Where men are mounted upon horses with big, <laughs> wide-brimmed hats. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Well-dressed man. There's another. There's another absolutely banging point here. Uh, he talks about 
my boy Wittgenstein, the late Wittgenstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I just have to read this quote directly because, yeah, he's just too on. He's too on it here. Uh, he says this. Uh, this is what philosophy effectively is: an illness, a dysfunctional behavior of human mind. In some sense, the late Wittgenstein was right. Philosophical problems arise out of the improper use of language. So the solution is to make them disappear by returning to proper use of everyday language. Uh, fun fact, I tried to write my thesis on that very <laughs> and I did not fully succeed. Uh, the problem is, of course, that it is impossible to do... Sorry. The problem is, of course, this that this is impossible to do since misuse is inscribed into the very heart of language, into its very mm. notion, as Hegel would have put it. The rules of language can be changed in order to open up new freedoms, but the trouble with politically correct newspeak clearly shows that the direct imposition of new rules can lead to ambiguous results and give birth to new, more subtle forms of racism and sexism. Uh-huh. That was like a while back, Michael, we were talking about the the new politically correct words for homeless people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Al- already in itself was a political politically correct term. Uh, uh, like unhoused, you know. Yeah, which nothing which changes with that. It's clear. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The euphemism treadmill. Yeah, mm. but that. Yeah, I love that. The the idea of misuse as being inherent in in language. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's not like a pure language that we can. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Wittgenstein thing is just is uh, is like language is use. Like language mm-hmm. is how you use it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, but also this idea of misuse is really interesting. Yeah, like there's no proper use of languages. I guess is what Zizek's twist on it. It's already, it's like always misused, mm-hmm. which is definitely something that Wittgenstein recognized. Um, but I, to my, as far as I know, he didn't, he wouldn't have put it like that. But then there's the Lalang aspect as well, right? Like, yeah, that it's it's full of all of these ambiguities and non-intended consequences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's already yeah because there is the there is the kind of psychological psychological and subjective element which for Wittgenstein he would have a hard time allowing because you know he has this whole thing which I've definitely mentioned before of like a private use of language he calls it mm-hmm. being impossible because even if you have a very detailed you know like new language that you've created it it's meaningless to other people uh, and therefore it's not a language. Because mm-hmm. la- language is something that that is used and spoken, you know, between people. He wouldn't have uh, had too much of a concept of like a kind of structuralist idea of language, would he? I don't know. I think sure. you can. You you could make the like he has the beetle in the box thing, which I think there's there's structuralist implications to that. That like using words is like is like having a beetle in a box. Mm. Uh, that I have this. I have this box and there's there's a beetle in it. Um and you have a box with a beetle in it. Although I don't know for sure if you have a beetle in your box and you don't know for sure if I have a beetle in my box. But we communicate we we nonetheless communicate as if there were a beetle in the box of the other person. I think you know that structurally speaking like words don't have inherent meanings but we communicate as if they do. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's almost like a utility that gets emphasized with Wittgenstein, right? Yeah. But at the same time, he'll say something like, whereof one can't speak, thereof one must be silent. 
Like I'm trying to think about yes. maybe how he would approach these impossible, like the the forced choice of the Buridan's ass. Oh, he has many. He has a lot of things that resemble that in philosophical investigations. That line that you just said is the the very last line of the Tractatus, his mm-hmm, first book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, they that that kind of Bourdain's ass thing, I think, would fit very well in his later philosophical mm-hmm. investigations. Even from the from the get go, when he's talking about uh, words as if they were blocks, like build as if they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Uh, mm-hmm. I then like war games. To... War games is also like you can make a Zizekian spin on that too. Yeah, we should do an episode on philosophical investigations sometime. It's it's really I think one of the best books on uh, books of philosophy ever written. It's like I'd love to do that right up there. It's so fucking good. Another philosopher who, like, I mean, with Wittgenstein, like, just like you're pointing to, there's, I mean, obvious differences. They're not, they're not the same. Like, Zizek is not a Wittgensteinian, uh, but you can relate a lot of topics or like concepts to it. Zizek brings up Sartre in the book, talks about mm-hmm. uh, an example where, uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was uh, Sartre basically saying that at no at no time were the French yeah, yeah, more, right. free more free than under yeah. the German occupation. Which, of course, like you know, it's counterintuitive because why would you be free under Nazi occupation? But it was a direct circumstance in which their freedom was it was an active uh, concern. Where in the in in their own freedom there was yeah we in the interview we like I asked him about Sartre and he says like he said that. His issue with Sartre, although he respects a lot of what he has to say, is that he's not existentialist enough. Do you want to? Do you know what he meant by that? In sorry, this is in the interview that you in, did. In the interview, yeah. Because mm. he doesn't actually explain what he meant by that. Maybe it's because I mean, Sartre obviously doesn't have a concept of the unconscious in his theory of freedom. So that's that might be what he meant. That's what I took from it. I will say though, I have existentialism as humanism here with me, and. He has an example of a priest who became a priest because he was his whole life failed and he took his failure to mean that he should be a priest instead of trying to access like secular success. But I think that kind of I mean, maybe there's it could be interpreted two ways, like and one of the ways where Zizek was talking about like like the choice of the kind of theological aspect of freedom where Mm -hmm. It's taken because it seems obvious. Like there's not, it's not like he chose. On the one hand, you can say he chose to become a priest because he he took measure of the various aspects of his life and concluded that he had been, he was like choosing. You know what I mean? Like he's not, he's choose like he's choosing his way into being, into believing what Jesus would believe. Like and that's not why you should believe in God. Like your God, your belief in God should be should not be recognized as a choice. You you believe like you've come up with reasons because you believe in God. I think there's something like you could understand that example of of the priest in the opposite way where like his failure he says now this young man had every right to believe that he was a total failure. It was a sign, but a sign of what? He could have sought refuge in bitterness and despair. Instead, and it was very clever of him, he chose to take it as a sign that he was not destined for secular success, and his achievements could be attained only in the realms of religion, sanctity, and faith. 
He saw in all this the messages of God, so he so he joined the order. Who can doubt that the meaning of the sign was determined by him and him alone? We might have concluded something quite different from his set of reversals. For example, that he might have been better off training to be a carpenter or a revolutionary. He therefore bears the full responsibility of his interpretation of the sign. This is what abandonment implies. It is we ourselves who are decided to what who decide what we are to be. Such abandonment entails anguish. I mean, that's not really what, what Jesus is saying, but I still think it sounds pretty good. It's like he chose what subjectively, what objectively was was foisted on him. Like the fact that he, he failed. Yeah, he made it he made the question of his kind of objective failure the source not that he should like continue in a different way in that direction like within the secular world but that uh his failure was a kind of like spiritual failure yeah Yeah. that's good like he subjectively chose his objective failure right re 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 yeah i hate to use the word again but reframed Mm -hmm. uh his relation to it and that's that is what jizek says often Mm -hmm. uh with freedom like he there's there's the minimal space where you choose how to respond to it to a an objective situation yeah. and so and, let's say and, that you're let's I, say we live in a predetermined universe you're free to choose your fate yeah mm-hmm. that's his point right which again is like that you know that interplay of necessity and freedom which seems to be you know opposing terms and i do i mean i do like this this point of anguish too mm-hmm. uh well, Sart says we're like condemned to be free, right? Uh, that we that th- we're scared of our own freedom, and I don't like the reason I bring this up is like I don't really see. Maybe it's because I'm an idiot. How this is contrary to what Jujak is saying? I don't think it is contrary. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it. Yeah, yeah. I imagine he would say something like, "No, I agree, but a little bit of emphasis here." Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think we can leave it there. And uh, thanks to all our patrons. Um, yes, there's some new people, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, classic Michael, right? You, you can tell me to fuck off. Okay, go on. Go on. <laughs> but I thought this was, I wonder what you guys, act, like I do genuinely care what, what you guys think about this one. Uh, at the end of the intro, he says, but how will this emancipation look? Since capitalism implies permanent self-revolutionizing, are we aware of how thoroughly our lives have changed in the last 50 years? My wager is that perhaps the time has come to reconceive communism as a counter-revolution, as an effort to establish a new stable order. Like in what sense is communism a counter-revolution? Because the revolution is occurring under capitalism. Mm -hmm. That's pretty clever, I thought. Yeah. And also because counter-revolution has... Counter-revolutionaries yeah. have a, have a mm-hmm. decidedly ominous and uh, right-wing tinge. There's a kind uh, of conservative, I mean, obvious conservatism to counter-revolutionary. Because mm, he italicizes it. They and, t- counter-revolutions a, tend to be more successful than revolutions. They do. <laughs> they do. And, <laughs> a good point. <laughs> and uh, at this point, within our kind of current ideological space, the tenets of Marxism appear to be kind of conservative. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's good yeah yeah uh until yeah. next time bye-bye mm-hmm. see you later everyone bye-bye.
into one, into one. Into one, into one. Uh, what's the title of your show? That's wonderful. Not Zizek and Hegel and Zizek and that, but and so on. And because I think that we have to read this in a speculative way. It's not and blah blah blah. The key element is that so on. Thank you.